I pivoted so much in one startup that I won an award for best new startup three times in the ad tech space. It was the always on conference in New York. Seriously, I walked up and the third time I got the award, I can't remember the gentleman's name. He said, please, God, please stop. (laughs) Hi, everybody, and welcome to GeekWire. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. And I'm GeekWire co-founder John Cook. We are pleased to be joined on this episode by a special guest, Matt Hewlett, a longtime Seattle entrepreneur and business leader and the author of a new book, Unlock, Five Questions to Unleash Your Company's Hidden Power. Matt, it's great to have you here. It is a true joy to be on, and it's been a while since I've actually seen you, and then hopefully at some point I can actually see you in real life. Yeah, I think the last time you and I saw each other was at the Rosetta Stone offices in Seattle, but the last time... John covered you, or maybe the first time, I don't know, was with one of your many companies, Empire, right? Back in Seattle? Yep, long time ago. That's going way into the vault there, Todd. So Matt, your new book is Unlock, Five Questions to Unleash Your Company's Hidden Power. And one of the fascinating things for me about this book was I got to go behind the scenes of many of the jobs that you've had, ranging from Real Networks and Game House to Expedia and Empire, all sorts of fascinating companies that we've covered at GeekWire and previous publications in one form or another. Was there one role that you had that you just could not wait to tell the story of in this book? I appreciate that. And the book is somewhat framework driven. And and, and I, when I started writing kind of, to be honest, a very dry book with this framework. And I thought, well, okay, maybe I should open up a little bit about what was behind some of these these turnaround situations I was in. That, that's just what the publisher wants to hear, right? I wanted, <laughs> I wanted, I wanted a dry, boring book. Yeah, like, yeah, sign me up. Well, how many books <laughs> do you read in the business world that you you don't want to you want to tell people about? And I think there was there was a couple. One, I think the Expedia experience for me was my MBA. I was hired by Rich Barton at Expedia at the time, who's the CEO and now CEO of Zillow, of course. But there was a whole host of people in that company some of which never get the light of day in terms of press, but really I felt like I learned my MBA at Expedia. And I tell a couple of stories in there, not only about the business that I ran, but I really was impressed with how the company really attacked the online travel space very early in the days when Travelocity was number one. And there was this brilliant move that they made to move from what's kind of agency hotels into merchant hotels, which in essence created a uh, multi-year advantage for the business. And that was a real fun story for me to tell. I had nothing to do with that pivot. Um, it was Rich, uh, Lloyd, Eric Blashford, a bunch of other folks. But I don't think that story has been told. So I had a great time telling that story. And your specific role at Expedia was the first leader of their effort to create a B2B business. And that was a key expansion point for Expedia, getting them into more of this corporate travel, if I understand it correctly. And we just had some interesting news from Expedia over the past couple of weeks where they've created a technology platform where they're going to expose these different travel-related APIs, application programming interfaces, so that others can build sites on Expedia's data, businesses or startups using Expedia's data and backend services. When you look at the evolution of this company, could you see that coming back then, Matt, when you were there? And what do you think of how they've evolved over the years? 
I have a long-winded answer, which I'm known for. I think the <laughs> the business started out being very entrepreneurial, spun out of Microsoft by Rich and a very talented crew of entrepreneurs. Then it became very corporate, uh, became under Barry Diller's IAC, completely different skill set. And travel, the important thing about this is this answer is travel is a size and scale game. It's not only important to be large because you can control generally how suppliers interact with you. The bigger you are, the more leverage you have in the conversation over commission and revenue share. But also it's a scale game because you can spread the R&D dollars over a larger swath of revenue. And so I've kind of seen over time IAC, which is a conglomerate, which is run previously very independently run businesses that don't even want to talk to each other. In fact, it was designed that way, almost like Berkshire Hathaway, to a business over time that during the pandemic contracted, I think, almost 50 percent in terms of top line revenue and had some serious issues. I think now what you're seeing is a different kind of Expedia that really focuses on integration. And so how do you leverage the size and scale together? So you see things like loyalty programs. You probably start seeing other types of things out of the business. You know, a lot of trip advisor tricks you're starting to see in Expedia now in terms of exposing um, reviews and maybe the sort order changes based on how popular a property is based on feedback. So I think this seems to me a little bit more of an Expedia that wants to be more integrated than a conglomerate, which which is different than what we've seen in the past. Yeah, it's really true. And this gets to your book. When you start talking about market sizing and evaluating the total addressable market, that is the first question of the five questions in your book. Is the market big and growing? And you make an interesting point that there's nothing wrong with running a, a small cash flow positive business, but if you really want to get to that next level, clearly you have to look at that market. And it's interesting in part because I don't think as many companies do that in a rigorous way as you might expect. Yeah, they don't. And I think there's these two um, kind of Gemini variables of TAM and timing. So you could actually have a be a pretty in a pretty, pretty big addressable market. Um, and it's crowded, or you get to define something that's more of a sliver of that. I call the service addressable market that's small and growing faster. And the example I've used many in the book, in fact, timing in particular is so difficult in business. I procrastinated on that chapter. I actually waited till the very end before the publication date deadline. I actually had to call in on some friends to tell me some of their secrets around market timing. Because when you look at it, it's not obvious that things like Stripe, for instance, would have been as successful in the fintech space when you had a crowded market with um, PayPal and others. They took a different approach. They looked at a sliver of the overall addressable market for electronic payments and said, okay, we're going to focus on mobile and we're going to focus on startups. And then over time, we think we can really grow that business uh, as a percentage of the overall addressable market. So not being really focused on where your spot is in the market is usually the area where I see the biggest problems with businesses. They try to be all things to all people. So Matt, you mentioned timing and how hard it is and how hard that was for you to write that chapter. We're in an interesting time for startups and all companies right now with what's going on in the market. What is your advice to those companies that are trying to navigate a certain time situation that we're in right now, which is extremely volatile or not only volatile, people are predicting we're headed maybe towards a recession. What are you advising folks in your sphere right now? As you said that, this quote from Warren Buffett popped into my head about the, um, I'll get it somewhat wrong, but you never know who's swimming naked until the tide goes out. And so that's a little bit of what I see both in public and private markets. 
for private companies, I would say, preserve your cash and make sure you have the right unit economics. And now is the time to make sure that you have your your business running for nuclear winter. I'm not saying it's nuclear winter yet, but you have many businesses that are getting growth multiples that are going to get hammered. And the next round of financing is going to really depend on, on whether they're really growing their business. So I think we're going to see a lot of these tombstone types of conversations that we saw with Sequoia back in the Web 1.0 bubble, where really private markets are going to start closing up, valuations are going to start going down, and some really great companies will emerge. But the companies that are run in a real sloppy way, which there's a many are, are going to suffer. And we're starting to see some layoffs already. And we see, you know, layoff tickers and trackers already up online. So I would say, you know, make sure you have a business model, make sure you have enough cash to survive. And um, you know, that's generally my advice. I think we're going to see, you know, some impacts in the private markets. But it could be a good time to start a company because it's going into a recession is oftentimes a good time. Absolutely. And there's tons of examples of great companies that were started. And also from an asset class perspective, this is probably a good time to invest in startups if you're an investor as well. Since there's a long hold time on those investments, you have to talk about seven to 10 years. It's not the time to be running out of investing in startups. But now you'll have the pick of the litter. You'll have valuations going down. You'll have more professional assessment of those businesses. And there's going to be better businesses overall to invest in. So if you're a company that might be struggling to, you know, figure out their revenue model, you may have to pivot, right? Which is something that I know you've done a lot through your career. What is the advice for those entrepreneurs that are looking at this market, looking at the changing dynamics and say, oh crap, we might need to make a quick change here. Before you jump in on that, Matt, I want to point out you've pivoted too much. <laughs> like, oh yeah. You had one pivot. Yeah. It was like, if you were on a basketball court, they would have thrown you off. You pivoted so much, you know, I pivoted so much in one startup that I won an award for best new startup three times in the ad tech space. I forget. It was the always on conference in New York. Seriously. I walked up and the third time I got the award, I can't remember the gentleman's name. He said, please, God, please stop. <laughs> Cause I changed the name of the company every time. So this must've been the empire widget bucks ad yeah. expose era. Yeah. Yes. which we will point out this was you know mul multiple startups around the advertising arena and i actually spoke to one of your executives there kirby winfield who runs ascend venture capital here in the seattle area a longtime uh, venture capitalist angel investor and entrepreneur and he wanted me to ask you specifically about pivoting and how you do it when you're a venture backed company because i think those companies that are venture backed they have added pressures on them because you know, the VCs may just want to cut bait on them first off, or they're like, Hey, we're, we're not even going to do, we're not, we're not messing around with you. You're in the third of our companies that are going in the trash bin. We're forgetting about you, or they might not be supportive of the pivot. So I'm curious how you manage as an entrepreneur, the venture investors, as you go through a pivot. And this was a question in part through courtesy of Kirby. I speak to that example at Expose and I'm very honest about the outcome while it was sold for, you know, 20 some odd million dollars to Comscore way back when. And I think Comscore postmortem says to me, because I know the chairman of Comscore because he's the chairman of my board at PetMeds, by the way, he said that it was a very successful acquisition. The investors didn't make money and Kirby was the one that got over the line. And so, you know, I give full credit to everyone involved there. To answer your question, you know, you want to pivot probably just once. 
and you want to pivot early and you'll get signs that you're not getting product market fit where really it's a difficult time to get customers to give you money. Nothing's really working in terms of customer value proposition. You, you want to make sure that when it becomes really, really difficult quantitatively and as well as qualitatively that you pivot once. And there's lots of famous examples of that. Of course, the Slack and Discord examples, they started up building you know, games and they became communication companies. There's lots of examples like that, but the pivot multiple times is not advisable. You're wasting time and you're wasting dollars. And generally, your investors will have a couple of things to say about you about that in terms of doing it too much. But I would say you you do it once, you do it thoughtfully. And as long as you have the right investors, they're kind of betting on the team versus how many times you can pivot. And so you got to be decisive and you have to be clear, but it's possible the case of Ad Expose, we pivoted three times, and it was a business that started out as an eBay seller tool business. Then we became an ad network, and then we became kind of an ad tech company. And you know, the amount of work that went into that was was so hard and so vast that by the time we actually sold um, Ad Expose, there was another company called Double Verify that was worth a massive more amount of money than than we generated. So I feel like. You know, you just waste time and money by pivoting too much. So pivot once, pivot early, and venture capitalists will typically bet on the team as long as it's a good plan. And you were able to convince the venture capitalists to stick with you through those multiple pivots? And was there a technique that you used to guide them along through the process that you think other entrepreneurs might want to know about? Steak dinners and lots of alcohol. (laughs) Um, No, I, I would say... You know, look, you have to be quantitative about it and you have to be plan oriented. Actually, Bill Bryant, the Draper Fisher Jerviston, uh, they go by a different name now, as a firm supported that pivot and um, is a very patient investor. Probably not his highest IRR investment ever, but it's about quality investors, logical business plan decisions and pivoting once. And, And generally in those environments, people will stick with you. But we know of a lot of examples of companies that keep pivoting and pivoting and pivoting. And, you know, they go from a potato chip factory to a cotton candy manufacturer very quickly or try to do multiple things at the same time. And we definitely do not see great results of those companies. Yeah, you talk about that a lot in the book, and it really gets down to focus. And I'm curious, when is it the right time for an entrepreneurial organization that may have hit their maximum potential in one area? To launch a new product, which, you know, it might be distracting or it might be a lack of focus, but you like see an opportunity in the market that's adjacent to something you're doing. Obviously, there are multiple examples with big companies of Amazon and Microsoft and Apple launching other product lines very different from what they did originally and having a ton of success with it. So I guess from a startup and entrepreneurial perspective, when is it the right time and when do you know there might be a product that is worth pursuing that's not going to take you down this rabbit hole and you know lose a bunch of money along the way these are these are great questions and these are hard questions i'll give you a folksy answer i'll give you a quantitative answer the folksy answer is i'm a big fan of kenny rogers the gambler no one to hold it no one to fold it and i can almost hear that in my head when i make some of these decisions and what i mean by that is depending on your job as the CEO is to be a capital allocator. And so there's typically kind of three ways I think about capital allocation is if I'm going after market share or revenue share, which are different, am I growing at or higher than market share or revenue share? If I'm not, 
then why? And do I have a good chance to grow at the market rate? If I'm not growing at the market rate, then I'm seeding market share to somebody else. If you decided that you're seeding market share to someone else and you want to focus on something else, then you harvest that, that asset. You're not trying to grow it. You're trying to optimize for cash flow. And then you have to ask yourself, what am I going to do with the cash? Most people don't think that way. Most people think, well, I've got lots of dogs. Let me try to create a star or I've got like a, a star asset and let me try to, you know, keep adding more and more products to the, to the business. And I think when you look at the business, stepping back from it, look at the macro, you try to figure out how can you enhance your chances of growth by how you are performing in the market. That's the first thing. And the second thing is, do I have enough capital to finance this next new thing? Or will it distract me because I'm already growing nicely in this other market? So the answer is always, it depends. But too many companies think that they can be the Lazarus, like, oh, this idea, this didn't work, but let me try this other idea. And they keep going and going and going. And they don't step back and think thoughtfully about the capital needs where they're going and how fast they can grow. Yeah, it's interesting because you have seen companies like Google and Amazon and Microsoft kill off product lines as successful as they've been growing into these other adjacent industries, probably for every industry they've grown into, they've killed off a couple other products. Uh, so I think they are disciplined about doing that. And they've also, you know, gotten a lot of flack for it, like the, the Ac- Oculus acquisition. We may look back and say that was a brilliant move. How many years have we said this is going to be the year of VR? And now they've made a huge multi-billion dollar bet in virtual reality with the big meta R&D play. You know, it's a question when you step back from that decision, they're generating a ton of cash flow. They're probably seeing, like everybody else is, their chances of, of tackling the uh, the millennial group and younger more difficult over time because Facebook is kind of where my parents spent a lot of their time. They probably looked at it and said, look, here's my growth rate here. Here's my cash flow. So I'm going to optimize EBITDA here. And I'm going to use that cash to go after some net new thing because that adjacency could be the next X, Y, and Z. And that's definitely a capital allocation decision at work. We're talking with Matt Hewlett, author of Unlock, Five Questions to Unleash Your Company's Hidden Power. Coming up, taking on the giants of the industry. That's after this break. I wanted a career in IT, but I didn't know where to start. WGU makes it simple. Their accredited online degree programs cover all kinds of IT specialties, and they have valuable industry certifications built in at no extra cost. The payoff? Having those certs back up my degree makes me look even better to future employers. A nonprofit university that includes top industry certs in their programs? I choose WGU. Learn more at wgu.edu backslash IT certs included. One of the things that stood out to me in the book, Matt, was this difficult dance that startups sometimes have to do with larger companies. And it came through in the early stages of the Widget Bucks empire pivot with eBay, where you built a business on eBay, essentially, where you were providing technology for it, and it just didn't work out the way you wanted to. And then you also tell a story later on about real networks and Microsoft, which was fascinating to me, actually, as someone who covered the tail end of that conflict. I covered the antitrust settlement that resulted from the shenanigans that you revealed in the book. Can you explain what real networks did to Microsoft that made Microsoft so angry? Yeah, I think that I called that chapter, that section, uh, Real Networks Poke the Bear. And to be clear, 
anyone that's listening, previous Real Networks person, there was no malfeasance or legal issues. There was nothing and fundamentally illegal about it. But there was definitely components to the agreement that upset Microsoft. And this constituted a full-on war. And I think I used the example that I felt like King Leonidas and Sparta getting attacked with all these arrows in the air. I mean, I remember like the day we upset Microsoft and I was thinking, oh my God, there's an army tackling me. I was the real player product manager at the time and we were a small team. And I just felt like, God, we have just poked the bear. And uh, what had happened was, and everyone remembers the the Bill Gates memo about getting serious about the internet. If you don't remember that, please ask your parents. But there was a real attempt by Microsoft to take back the internet in terms of the browser wars, but also um, media formats online. And Real Networks at the time had the de facto standard for audio and video streaming. And there were some things that were coming up in terms of Apple's kind of approach on watermarking and their formats. And it became a format war in essence. And so Microsoft as an operating system wanted to have you know the standard in everything on the internet in terms of streaming. They had their own format called uh, Windows Media Player and that we called that affectionately WIMP at Real Networks, the W-I-M-P. And uh, we cut a deal with Microsoft to basically stream our format, um, our audio and video formats. But in the contract, Microsoft clearly wasn't as as smart as, as we were at Real Networks that you know we, we gave them up into a certain level of our format, which didn't really mean that the new format would be compatible with theirs. So in essence, they wrote a pretty big check for the inability to stream the new format in which set off a major war because they were pretty pissed off and then they started, you know, really accelerating their market share. They really wanted to go after us and they gave away servers for free and paid money for big media publishers to convert their um, real audio and real video uh, media into Windows Media. And it was a it was a real all out war, um, not unlike what we saw with Netscape and Internet Explorer. And so there was nothing illegal about it. But by I, I don't know what you call it, maybe the acumen behind the agreement was was such that we really invited a full-on war and a war that eventually Real Networks won in terms of a legal battle with lots of cash. But, you know, to, to what extent did that war really distract the company from executing on its on its vision it is kind of where I left it in the book. Yeah, I have to say, reading it, and perhaps this is just my interpretation, but it did not seem like Real Networks was acting in its own best interest long-term by doing that. And perhaps not in good faith, but at any rate, it was an interesting little twist. And I bring it up in part because we now have news just over the past week that Real Network's share price has reached the point where they're facing delisting from the NASDAQ. And Rob Glazer, who came back several years ago as the CEO and is the founder of the company, he is now planning to buy the remainder of the company that he doesn't own. And, you know, Matt, it's inevitable. We write a real network story. Do you know what the first comment that anybody makes on social media is? Oh, buffering? No. Well, that would be good, too. That would be good, too. No. Inevitably. That company is still around? Uh, (laughs) Yes. If you were running real networks, if you were Rob Glazer, what would you do at this point? And maybe even could... Rob, take the principles in your book and apply them. I know you wouldn't be so bold as to suggest that, but you know what could he learn from your book that might turn real networks around? 
Well, I mean, uh, it's a, it's a complicated answer. I have a complicated history with the company. I would say the, I mean, look, I don't think there's anyone that is as smart as Rob, both technically uh, as well as you know, marketing wise than Rob. I I I would say, yeah, I think you've written about this before that Rob's ability to acquire talent and find talent is unmatched. And you have so many leaders that have come out of that company that, you know, are, are titans of business and, and all around tech. So unbelievable. I don't think he gets the credit that he deserves for putting that company on the map and then, you know, the type of talent he really found and, and developed. So that that's my positive comment. The second I would say is, you know, kind of know when to hold it, know when to fold it. I mean, if you're not growing anywhere and you're struggling in lots of different verticals, you know, that that's those are big warning signs, whether you're emotional about it or not. Intellectually, you got to know there's there's issues. And so going back to like how much capital you have to go after these different segments, boy, you, you got to you got to be really mindful about that. And what I have always found in these different stories that I've told and where I've, I haven't been successful and where I have been successful is focus is key. And so if you're not growing in one core market that you really want to grow in, you know, you either have to decide to double down and invest in that or you divest, but you can't do multiple versions of that. And so a multi-front war is very difficult to fight. And so focus is your friend. It's not your enemy. And, and that would be kind of my overall advice, not only for that company, but any company is when you're having trouble, you don't keep doing more and more things. You, you focus in on, on the core. So I did two tours there. And um, completely different experiences both times. You came back and ran Game House, the, the games division. Yeah. And so, you know, a lot of times it's difficult to fight those battles as a public company. So if you can thrive as a private company, more power to you. And at Rosetta Stone, we were like the babushka of businesses. We had like three or four different businesses. None of them were growing except for one it was a kind of a hot mess as a small cap business. And, you know, I turned around the language business with a really good team. They actually did it. I was just kind of got the credit for it, I guess. And we sold it, but we went private because you can do a lot of things in the private markets when you have multi-businesses that you can't do as a public company. And, you know, I, I think private equity is going to see a resurgence, especially, you know, back to John's previous questions. I think private equity can come back and start repairing some of these businesses that are hammered on the growth side. And, you know, it could, you could see these businesses turn around again and maybe become public companies. So if you can't win in one environment, you can, you can win in others. And, you know, Michael Dell did that and others. That's a long-winded way of saying, figure out where you're going to be special and where you're going to grow and then figure out right. What's the right way to deploy that capital and where should that capital be? And if you're losing everywhere, you can keep going and going and going, but the definition of insanity is blah, 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 right? If it's not working and it hasn't been working, it's probably not going to work. I have to say, just from a reporter's perspective, I wish people cared about real networks more simply because I am fascinated with that company. And do you know Rob Glazer is back to doing product demos, Matt? Like when they have news... They've been doing a bunch of stuff in AI with their safer technology and facial recognition and kiosks and uh, building access control. Rob is on the calls, making the pitch decades later. And I am fascinated with that. I think that there's some kind of documentary or Netflix series, whether 
true life or, you know, dr- dramatized. And then you throw in the bowling. I mean, oh my God, it's such a great story and nobody cares. Except <laughs> you, Todd. Except, you. Except me. <laughs> I care, Rob. Todd, Todd cares. <laughs> I, I think some people care. It. And and I do think there's a story there. And, you know, look, I wish no ill will on anyone in the company, in particular Rob. And I think that you know he doesn't get the credit that he deserves. We can always add advice from the armchair and throw darts and stuff. I think it's easy easy to do that. And look, we're Seattleites, we're Northwesterners, we don't do that. And I think that, you know, it is an interesting story. We're talking with Matt Hewlett, author of Unlock, Five Questions to Unleash Your Company's Hidden Power. Next, what you can learn from your competition. That's after this break. This GeekWire podcast is sponsored in part by Yale University Press. Are you concerned about the rise of AI and how it will impact our society? Every day, artificial intelligence presents us with urgent ethical challenges. How do we harness this extraordinary technology to empower rather than oppress? Nigel Shadbolt and Roger Hampson have written a how-to for building ethical machine intelligence. Their new book, As If Human, Ethics and Artificial Intelligence, is now available wherever books are sold. Matt, I wanted to ask you about competition because this is something that surprised me in the book that you actually talk about it very directly because, because, you know, mostly when you hear venture capitalists or entrepreneurs talk about competition, well, we hate the line at GeekWire when people respond, oh, we have no competition. Our product is so great. You know, that is like the biggest PR red flag. Don't do that. We hate that. But you talk about it very bluntly, and I was surprised at how much you actually do think about competition and some examples that you've used. And you know, this example of real networks and Microsoft as, as competitors and what that meant to the business. How, as a younger or, or a you know up and coming entrepreneur or startup, should those folks think about their competition? Should they put it in the rearview mirror, not worry about it, focus on what they're doing? What's a, what's a real uh, great, good example of how people should think about it? Yeah, I hate it when people say I don't focus on the competition. They're, everyone's lying. They're certainly focused on it. And so I think it's fun to have competition. You're better when you have competition and you can pick your spots when you have the competition. So I always start with who's the customer and what's their pain. I'm a product manager reformed. But then I'm like, okay, once I understand that, let me understand the where that proposition is. So here's an example. When I was at Expedia, we had, you know, this business that was kind of not doing so well on the B2B side. And it was a kind of the classic analysis of, hey, there's a massive corporate travel market out there. And we're Expedia, we're well known. And if we just sold 1% of the transactions in this market, that'd be a big market. And they kind of built a Melba Toast version of that. Yeah, so so I'm guessing it was like what at that time it was American Express had a big corporate. Yeah, American business. Express was was the biggest, and so you, you know really people don't buy that way, and it goes back to, and I referenced the book Crossing the Chasm, which is I think one of the best business books, at least product market entry and go to market around. You got to pick your bowling pin when you go into a market. You knock the first bowling pin down, and you can knock down the rest. Back to the real networks example, I guess. And the first bowling pin is what is the customer, whether what's the demographic, the psychographic, who is that customer? If it's a B2B business, what's the firmographic? And Expedia, we decided to go into the B2B market focused on 
companies that really were focused on technology because booking online was not common. So we focused on people who are more technology oriented that also wanted to save some money. And so instead of going after all these different industries that had like VIP travel agents sitting outside the CEO's office, which was actually true in the entertainment industry, we went after technology companies. We went after manufacturing companies that already use technology that like to have their, their employees actually book their own travel. And we started building a little bit of a beachhead around that and started expanding. Rosetta Stone, Duolingo and Babbel kind of kicked the crap out of Rosetta Stone. And instead of trying to be a free product or change the business model, we went the other way and said, look, a third of the market is kind of higher end customers that really want to learn a language. The other companies we felt like were focused on these short term experiences of you can learn a language in three weeks. Well, that's not true. It takes years to learn a language. And so we went the other way and focused on higher end customers, a premium experience. And that seemed to work with that cohort of customers. And the overall point is you only start to understand these things when you understand the moves of your competitors, understanding their business model, understanding how much capital they have to deploy. And you can find spots around that, especially when you feel like you're being outgunned. That's different than a competitor. Sometimes the person with 10,000 features can be defeated with one feature. How much time should entrepreneurs spend on this, though? Because I can imagine it could be all-consuming, and then you are worried more about where your competition weaknesses are versus truly just focusing on what you need to do. Probably as much as you do your strategic planning. Like if you're in a D2C business, you're going to want all your growth people to know how much your competition spending for keywords and ads and stuff like that. And that's going to be like daily. You're like a day trader. But as a strategist, as a CEO, you're probably going to want to do this every quarter and start kind of using this as a team sport. And at Expedia, Rich did this amazing thing. Rich Barton did this amazing thing where on a regular basis, we do these bare bull sessions and we pick either side of a debate, like, will Google kill us? How do we kill American Express? And we'd actually debate this almost like high school debate class for a week or so. And at the end, they'd bring in a special speaker that happened to know a lot about that subject that would kind of reveal the answer, like the teacher's edition. But we do that on a, on a quarterly basis because, you know, these things are pretty big decisions you got to make. So that's a long way away saying if you're in the business of buying media, those tactical decisions, definitely more daily, but strategically, you know, every quarter. Just last week, we had the GeekWire Awards, and the theme was superheroes. And John did some deep research and found out that you love graphic novels and you love superheroes, especially growing up. So one of the questions that we asked entrepreneurs and business leaders at the GeekWire Awards was, which superhero best describes your company's ethos or your ethos, your approach as an entrepreneur. So not to put you on the spot, but given that you're a recognized expert in this field, it seems only appropriate that we continue it to this podcast. Look, I, I want to be really clear. I am probably more freaky and weird than you understand. Like what off camera <laughs> in my office like I have a full Batman outfit uniform to the right of my screen. So no one can see it. I look at it all the time for, you know, it's inspiration, but it's definitely Batman for a variety of different reasons. One is kind of a dark side. Cause I kind of feel like there's a tragic piece that for some reason I associate myself with, but also he's super scrappy and super entrepreneurial. And he always has something in his utility belt. And just when you think the chips are down, 
he can fight anyone that's even the most competent fighter, even way overpowered than Batman. But he's always got something in his utility belt and he uses his mind to fight crime. So I, I find him to be a very fascinating character. That might be one of the best answers we've heard. Yeah, yeah, that's very fitting for your uh, tactics and coming in and transforming businesses too. So it's actually interesting because one of the questions I was going to ask you, Matt, is some entrepreneurs go through these stages and different companies, and they have somebody that's either their number two or their equal who works alongside them. You know, I've got John. I'm Mr. Robin. Yeah, I was gonna say. No. I, I was gonna say. I was trying to come up with a self-effacing joke that also put John down, and it did. I just wasn't coming. It wasn't but, but you've basically gone through life as Batman without your Robin. So, I, it, or am I missing somebody? Is it is it somebody else in your life? It's a lonely place to be me. Um, <laughs> well, no. I, there's multiple. There's people I look. I, I have a good stable of of mentors that I've. I've worked with for, for quite a while. So that's kind of like the horizontal piece to it. it, it you can always go back and talk to um, your mentors, but you know, the, the jobs I've taken, whether they're public or private or big or small, you can't take the same people with you because there's a different set of problems. Remember the, the original mission impossible had, you know, they always pick like these different, like I need the strong man and the demolition person. Right. And, and you didn't want the demolition person in every situation. And so, you know, there's certain people that I would pull on for different jobs. For example, my new CTO here at Pet Meds was my CTO over at Rosetta Stone. So, you know, I, I do take people with me with a particular set of skills, but you don't need turnaround people in every situation. And so it is a little unique in that I've kind of done it alone. But, you know, there is kind of a, a cast, a motley crew of people, a rogues gallery of people that. I do call on, and then I have mentors that kind of help me for my, my um, counseling sessions. Matt, ultimately, what do you hope people will take away from this book? For the 1% of companies that we read about that are already market leaders that are, have maximum market share and are growing massively, you know, they're not going to read this book. But what I'm hoping for is somebody who's either an early stage startup or someone who has an established business that are struggling to find growth, that this book really enables them to be a market leader. It's the book I wish I would have read early in my career. Matt, it's a lot of fun to catch up with you. Thanks for doing this. It's really great to catch up with all of you. And one of these days I'll be in Seattle and I will attend an event. Matt Hewlett is a veteran of the Seattle tech and startup scene. He's currently the CEO and president of PetMed Express, a publicly traded Florida-based online pet pharmacy. His new book is Unlock, Five Questions to Unleash Your Company's Hidden Power published by Page Two Books. You can see the show notes for links to the book and an excerpt on GeekWire. Thanks for listening. Our show is edited by Kurt Milton. I'm Todd Bishop. And I'm John Cook. We'll be back next week with a new episode of the GeekWire podcast.